Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Lens. We are kicking off year 10 of Behind the Lens today. I can't believe it. I can't believe I've survived this long. I can't believe publicists and talent have been generous enough to sustain the show with their personal, with coming in studio, calling in live consistently week after week after week. I appreciate you all so much. And I appreciate those that... (laughs) Pam's playing. I think Frank Meyer has inspired her to play now with with sound effects. This could be a bad thing in the future. Uh, (laughs) But I'm thrilled that we are still here. Um... On Mondays at 11 o'clock Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AdrenalineRadio.com. And it is a joy. It is a joy talking to each and every director, producer, talent, uh, actors, cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, composers, authors, recording artists, um, sound effects, visual effects we have talked to hundreds upon hundreds of people as we may as we start our 10th year on behind the lens radio show um i am just thrilled absolutely thrilled and in case you don't realize it yes i am debbie elias the creator and host of behind the lens where we go Behind the lens, below the line, with all those movers and shakers, the film and TV makers. And I just rattled off some of the uh, artistry, artisans that we uh, speak with. And today is going to be no different. You know that our regular listeners, those that have popped in uh, every year and again, um, I was hoping that my original co-host, I can't say enough about Greg Srizavazdi, and Chad Anthony Miller. Chad, an accomplished uh, actor. He's now in Texas and does a lot of theater work. Greg is still bouncing around here. We were just on the phone the other week um, during a virtual press day uh, and doing all the chatting in the hospitality suite. Um, Greg is absolutely wonderful. And please, if you get a chance, check out his site, Deepest Dream. He does podcasts. He does reviews. He does podcasts with a couple other guys, and they do reviews and things like that. Uh, And then, of course, Greg does a lot of virtual interviews. And he uses Zoom, so you can see faces. I do not use Zoom. Uh, So you just get audio with me. But uh, Greg was there at the very beginning. He is a a good friend, and... uh, I, I wish he was here with me today to kick off year 10. And Chad is just goofing off in Texas, um, being very dramatic on stage, I am sure. But today, you know, you know that every year on the anniversary of the show, I try and have a really incredible guest. Well, this year is no different because joining me at the midpoint of the show is Academy Award winner Tom Schulman. Uh, I'm a big fan of Tom's work. You know him best as a writer. Dead Poets Society, for which he won his Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. 
He is also responsible for Welcome to Mooseport. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. What about Bob? And one of my favorite Sean Connery films, Medicine Man. Uh, He is back with us now. He's been kind of absent uh, in the cinematic uh, arena for a while. But he is back now with a pot boiler, Double Down South. And what a film it is. Uh, Writing and directing, this is his first directorial since 1997. He's kept us entertained with his pen and paper, but now he's back in the writer's, uh, in the writer's, uh, can't even talk today, in the director's chair. And what a film it is. I am so excited that Tom's going to be joining us at the midpoint of the show. Uh, I can't wait to speak with him. But first, I've got my exclusive pre-recorded interview for you with writer-director Bill Oliver uh, talking about our son. This is a powerhouse of a film. Uh, It stars Billy Porter and Luke Evans and a very young Christopher Woodley. Billy and Luke play parents, uh, a gay couple, Gabriel and Nikki, and uh, Christopher plays their son, Owen. And while they seem to have an idyllic life, they don't. Envision this as a Kramer versus Kramer for the 21st century. This is, it's a beautifully shot film. There's a painterly realism to it. Uh, Luca Fantini is the cinematographer. Zach Clark and Tyler Jensen edited this. Ola Flottam does an amazing, has composed an amazing score. The end title song is one, a duet by Billy and Luke. And I think Billy wrote it. Um, but if the film focuses on fatherhood, family, divorce, Billy Porter, award-worthy from beginning to end, he is the heart of this film. This is only Bill's second film. He co-wrote this with uh, his collaborator, Peter Nikowitz. The two of them also did Bill's first feature directorial, Jonathan, uh, that starred Patricia Clarkson and Ansel Elgort back in 2018. Uh, It's a beautiful film. There's an emotional beauty that is palpable. Uh, So without any further ado... Take a listen to my exclusive interview with writer-director Bill Oliver talking Our Son. Hi, Bill. Hi. What a beautiful, beautiful film you have given us with Our Son. Thank you. I didn't know what to expect. I certainly did not expect Billy Porter to be the standout that he is in this film in such a different role for him. He is the heart and soul of this film. Yes. Just absolutely outstanding. I agree. (laughs) Even Luke Evans. You really do not like his character of Nikki. He's very set in his ways, and he really isn't seeing the big picture. But then he has such an arc that really does a total turnaround in the third act with the, after the beach day. Just outstanding from Luke as well. You really, you brought it all together so perfectly here. 
this really is, it's like a, a Kramer versus Kramer 21st century story, but with the overreaching arc being fatherhood. And the way that you and your co-writer, Peter, have crafted this is so well done. I just can't tell you enough about it. It really is wonderful. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Where did the idea for this story arise? Because this really is the first film we have seen with gay parents going through divorce. And it's just as contentious as with any other divorce out there. Right. Um, so my writing partner, Peter, and I, you know, we, we wanted to make a, um, a, a film about uh, our community, the queer community. And, you know, we weren't sure what to do. And, and, and you know, we wanted to make something of the kind of film that we like to see, which is this kind of movie, which is sort of, you know, about the everyday lives of people that people can relate to. And, um, you know, the idea of divorce is exciting. Like you said, we hadn't seen that before. And the right to marry comes the right to divorce. It is a right. Um, and we felt like that was exciting. It could be a first. And um, but divorce also just gave us an opportunity to just really show a family and, and in an intimate way. Uh, going through this transformation because divorce, you know, is, is terrible. It's, it's loss, but it's also change, and it it brings into relief those things we, we sometimes take for granted, like our relationships with our partners, our children, our families, our friends, and it forces Nikki's character to become the father he needs to be and forces everyone to show up for each other when they may be taking each other for granted. So it was a great opportunity to make a very intimate film just about the lives of, of of this particular queer family, which was our goal. And the beauty that, that very subtly show us, they're each having to put the mirror up to their face and see themselves for who they are. I really appreciate how you did that. And the beauty of this entire film is that it is it doesn't just appeal to, it's not just for queer families, anybody else in the LGBTQ community. This is relatable to every demographic out there. Everybody, it's a very human story. Everybody goes through this. Right, I mean, that was kind of the message of the movie, really, that, that we're, we're all human, um, you know, and, 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 and we embrace that. You know, we, we wanted it to speak to um, as wide an audience as possible and you know i think it, you know it, it wasn't you know politically motivated but i do think movies you know can change people's hearts because you know even though these are fictional characters we um we get to know them we we empathize with them and we kind of um you know we we, we understand we learn some things about the community we we but we just, we feel for them in a universal way. So um, that was definitely, you know, one of the goals as well. And of course, at the heart of this, beyond the parents is the child. And Christopher Woodley is dynamite as young Owen. He is yes. incredible. And I like that you really include his perspective in there in some key scenes walking away from the refrigerator. There's no food in the house. 
you have to go shopping. And you know, moments like that and the sadness. He can, Christopher can turn on a dime going from sad or looking pissed off as only a child can do to then being ebullient when he sees Gabriel show up somewhere. It's, he is fantastic, but you never let us lose sight of the fact that there is a child in the middle of all of this. And I think that's so important in your, di in your story dynamic. Yes, yes. Christopher uh, was amazing. And, you know, we, 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 uh, we, we saw uh, so many kids and who were all great. And he just stood out um, to me and to Billy and Luke as, 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 as Owen. Um, and he's, he's so natural. And we wanted a kid that just seemed like a real kid. That was our main goal. Because, you know, it was important to me that, that audiences just believed these characters exist, which they do. Um, and so that, that realism uh, and that naturalism was, was the main quality I was looking for with him. And he's just so charming and, and sweet and adorable that you just you feel for him. Oh, every, every second of the film. You're, you're just, yeah. your heart's breaking for him that he's the one that's caught in the middle. Anybody that ever, that knows people going through divorces with children, it's always the child that you feel the most for because there's nothing they can do and they're just victims of circumstance. And you really brought that idea home with the judge in the divorce proceeding. That really, I think, was so important to bring that in to this story. Which, yeah. which leads me to this, the tonal balance that you have, the emotional tonal bandwidth is so well done. How difficult was it to find the emotional beats and balance them throughout this film and to do it visually? Yes, I mean, we knew, um, you know, we, 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 when we wrote the film, we wanted to, you know, put our hearts on our sleeves and, and really not be afraid of, of showing emotion and infusing it with emotion. Um, but we also didn't want it to be a, a downer or, or, or depressing. Um, so we, we, you know, flexed with, with moments of humor and lightness um, and warmth and love and so that uh you know we wanted again it's sort of um we wanted it to just reflect life which has the full spectrum um and so many movies kind of are too are sort of overly narrow they're just purely comedic or they're just incredibly bleak and depressing and to me that always frustrates me because that's just not how life is and especially in moments of difficulty or times of difficulty, we use humor to cope. Um, so that was sort of a salvation for everyone on the, both on the set and for me making the movie, that we knew that um, if, you know, after filming a very intense uh, emotional scene or a fight scene that, you know, the next day we would have a scene that was a dinner party or something lighter. Um, and that kind of got everyone through a I have to commend you, uh, your work with your cinematographer, with Luca Fantini, and you have really used framing to the best advantage with telling this story from a visual standpoint. 
you and Lucas stick with your mid shots, but for you go wider in the third act with the beach, with the park scene, we really, as the worlds are expanding, as people are opening their eyes and their hearts, otherwise you keep it pretty tight. Everything feels like a close-knit family, but you slowly start pulling apart instead of Gabriel and Nikki being together in the same frame. We start seeing the camera uh, blocked so that one is like slowly moving out of frame and we can visually see the distance, the emotional distance. How, what were your conversations like with Luca to come up with this visual design, the visual grammar? Yes, um, he's amazing. And I, you know, I, I interviewed so many cinematographers for this film and I, you know, and um, I'm a planner. I like to, uh, with my first film, I storyboarded everything and worked it all out in advance. And I knew for this film that I wanted some, it was gonna be all about their performances and I wanted to be a little bit freer and just really respond to what they were giving me rather than impose, making them hit certain marks or you know, have perfect, absolutely perfect framing. Um, so I was talking to a lot of cinematographers who were like me and planners and, and it just, they were having great ideas. And then I finally met Luca, who um, is Italian. He grew up in Italy and he was, um, as a teenager, he uh, shot and edited wedding videos for his father's wedding video business. And then he became a, a, a wildlife photographer, kind of a world famous. So he is, um, his specialty is capturing the fleeting moment, you know, that, that moment that's never going to happen again. Mm -hmm. which is what I wanted from this film because I wanted it to feel like it was just unfolding, like this is just, we're just witnessing life unfold. Um, so he shot most of the movie himself with this sort of body camera rig that he had the camera on. And he was like, it was like an umbilical cord with the actors. He would move with them and it was like a dance. It was really incredible and they loved it um, because they were free to move about and do what they wanted and, and just be in the scene. Um, but he's also an artist and his compositions are and lighting are beautiful without very much equipment at all because, you know, we've, we've mostly used available light, mm -hmm. partly budgetary, but also partly we wanted, again, the actors to feel like they were in a real home without seeing like a bunch of lights and cables everywhere. So um, he's just a, a, a magician at, at that. and. Thank you for appreciating that sort of progression because that is something we've talked about. You know, we wanted it to, it's a very interior movie, but we didn't want it to feel claustrophobic. So it does open up as the characters are opening up, I guess you could say. Yeah, because we get the whole, you know, all the friends together at dinner, all the friends together on the couch as they're kind of talking to Nikki and it's like, well, you know, you need to think about this. And we get that intimacy that very much speaks to the idea that you can choose your family. You don't necessarily need the, have to have the ones that you're blood related to. You can choose your family and we really get that familial sense and support system that comes through with the camera work. And I just really appreciate that you and Luca put so much thought into that. Talk to me about the color palette. This is a very subdued color palette. 
we really don't see a whole lot of color until that third act. What were your thoughts in the color palette, particularly in terms of working with the production design within Nikki and Gabriel's house? Yes, so um, we, with the production designer and the costume designer, I, we talked about um, <clears throat> using uh, uh, texture and color a lot to, to create kind of a, a coziness or an intimacy, like you said. Intimacy was sort of the key word for everybody. Um, that we just wanted to feel like a closeness and that the, the audience, you know, could just reach out and touch them and hold them and give them a hug. So um, we, you know, we talked to, so there's a lot of um, texture that we tried to bring in to the scenery and to the costumes. And, um, you know, my costume designer, Aubrey, is so genius with, with color and he brought in a lot of our references to, um, Sort of uh, like queer uh, queer history that you don't even notice, but that, that was his inspiration. Um, and um, and I think the, the colors are beautiful. I wanted it to be colorful without being sort of too too garish or overly colorful. You know, so it has a sort of beautiful kind of muted color palette. Um, like we want, we talked about a painterly realism. I think we called it, which is. It was important to me that this family and this world seem real, uh, that the audience believe they exist, because they do, but also to elevate them through beauty. So we had a sort of painterly realism approach that we followed. I mean, it looks beautiful. And I like, I like the fact that color, eye-popping color, we get in Owen's room, like any kid, there's color popping, be it in the room, in the house, the family house, and then in Gabriel's apartment. And that beautiful, who did that beautiful mural on the wall in the bedroom at Gabriel's apartment? That is just oh, stunning. Right. Yes, um, that was the, um, that was uh, someone in the art department. Yeah, they, they created that sort of woodland scene. Um, yeah, that, that was great. Um, um, Yes, we wanted to, you know, again, and, and that was a gesture from Gabriel that we thought was in character that he would try to make it, you know, as nice as possible for his son going through this. And what's so great with that mural also, you've got animals in there, in there that normally would not be getting along, but all the animals are getting along. So mm -hmm. really nice yeah. subtext happening there, Bill. Yes. How challenging was the editing process on this one? Uh, the editing process, I mean, it was, um, you know, it's always challenging, you know, for me because you go into the editing right after shooting, which is difficult, you know, even if you take a little bit of a break to sort of shift gears and put on the other hat and try to, you know, I, I tend to see all my mistakes and then, <laughs> you know, it, it, has, it takes me a while to let go of the shoot and really see it because it's you know it's just, it starts over really when it gets to the editing room and you you're you're crafting it all over again um and it was it was about you know really uh, to me it was the goal was to um you know was the performances to really shape them so that um they felt full 
full and satisfying and equally weighted and balanced. Um, and also that the tone, um, you know, hit the right note, that it wasn't too too sad or, or you know, it, but it also went there. You know, it went to, you know, that we did hit the pain because that is part of divorce. You know, it's, 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 you do go through hell and come out on the other side, hopefully. Um, so we worked a lot with music um, in, in that regard, too. Speaking of your music, number one, I think the end credit song that Billy and Luke did is fabulous. It's so beautiful. And their voices complement each other so well, musically. But your score, it's a very subtle score that you have here. It never overpowers anything. And again, it lets the performance dictate what's happening versus the music leading you into, oh, okay, they're going to be mad. Oh, somebody's going to cry. What were you looking for musically from your composer, Ola? Yes, I mean, he is a composer that I've loved for so long, and I, I listen to his work while I'm writing. And, you know, it's one of those dream composers that you never think you can get until you ask. And then you did, I did, and he said yes. And he scores, he's Norwegian, and he hasn't done too many American films, but he, he works a lot with the director, Joaquin Trier, the worst person in the world, and um, another movie I love called Louder Than Bombs, which is an English language film. Um, and his music just has this sort of sort of magical fairy dust quality of being there's a sadness but there's also a, a brightness and a sort of um a sort of like you know what's happening is almost kind of spiritual like you know what what is happening is is so deeply human that his only commentary is just kind of ceremonious like almost so um, I didn't have to talk to him too much because he, by his nature, just fit what I wanted so well. Um, and it was, we had a quick turnaround. So, you know, he would send me cues and I would make very minor adjustments to it. And, and, um, and but we did talk a lot about where music would go because, like you said, it, you know, it's, I wanted it to use it pretty sparingly and not, you know, overdo it for the music because that's, just something I hate um, in movies, and um, and yeah, thank you for the, Billy wrote that song um, before we even started shooting, just inspired by the script, and then and then before even Luke was was involved, I think he didn't, and he wasn't even aware. He knew that Luke sang, but uh, no one knew that they would sound so good together until they did. Their voices meld so perfectly. When they're speaking, they're very distinct and separate, but musically in that song, they're right there on the same page. Yeah, I mean, it was just another one of those magical things that happened just very quickly, and um, and it just it just worked, and it's a testament. I mean, at that point when they recorded the song, they had, you know, they didn't know each other before making this movie, but they, as soon as I got them together, you know, there was chemistry there and that's something you worry about as a director when you're casting romantic leads you don't know and I was just so lucky that they just had such great chemistry and then so that kind of just 
that just carried through into the song when they recorded it, and it was like half a day. That was just <laughs> just not. <laughs> <laughs> Only taking half a day for a song is miraculous in its own right, Bill. In, t- yeah, I mean, in today's I, I world. I don't know exactly. I wish I was there because um, I would have loved to have seen them do it. But um, I saw them perform it live at, the, at our Tribeca premiere. And, um, of course, I've heard it so many times. But it's, it's really beautiful. And it's uh, coming out at the end of the month on Billy's album. Oh. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. I will be on the lookout for that. So uh, now. He just released a new album, but it, it doesn't have it on there now, but it will have it. It'll be released as a single, I think, on December 29th, and then included as part of the album at that point. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful to hear. Now, yeah. I got a last question for you here, Bill. You know, second feature film under your belt. Out there, everybody is going to get to see this now. What did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker and a storyteller in making Our Son that you can now take forward into your future films? Yes, I mean, uh, like I was saying before, you know, I was my first film. I was so, you know, kind of overprepared and just wanted to make sure everything was perfect. And, and with this film, you know, I wanted to kind of challenge myself to have um, a little bit of a, of a looser style. I mean, you always have to prepare, and but then, but then I learned to let go a little bit more of that preparation, and to be in the moment and respond to my collaborators, and um, and that's something that I really enjoyed. I discovered that I really enjoyed that, and I want to continue. Um, making films that way and I want to continue making these kinds of films. I also discovered that this is sort of my sweet spot of just sort of the kinds of stories I want to tell which are these stories about really these sort of slice of life stories about the everyday lives of people. Mm -hmm. I had seen your film Jonathan and I thoroughly enjoyed it and and I really liked it but this one I see your growth as a filmmaker, your growth as a director, and storyteller with our son. I cannot wait to see what you do next, Bill. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Bill, thank you so much. You too. It was a pleasure. Great question. Thank you. And that was my exclusive interview with writer-director Bill Oliver, co-writer with Peter Nikowitz, our son, It is out now. I know it is also on Spectrum, so you can watch it there. I highly encourage you to see it. It's an extremely well-done movie. It really is beautiful um, from an emotional standpoint and from a story standpoint uh, and focusing on a perspective we haven't really seen before. Two fathers uh, engaged in divorce and a child in the middle. So, now... We're going to shift gears here, and he's already on the line, so I'm going to bring him live. And a big, big hello to you, Tom Schulman. Hello to you, too. How are you? I am so thrilled to have you on the show and be speaking with you today. I am. Thank you. I'm such an admirer of your work. To this day, still, you you put the pen to paper uh, along with your uh, co-writer, for one of my favorite Sean Connery films, Medicine Man. 
Oh, wow. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. I, I don't care how many times I've seen that film over the years. I can pop that in my VCR. Yes, I have the wow. VHS tape. Uh, wow, that's and great. Thank you. It just, you never cease to engage me. Be it for a film like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or something like Welcome to Mooseport or, of course, your Oscar-winning Dead Poets Society. You always, I know if your name is on something, I'm going to like it. And, oh, you're so kind. Thank you. And now, we haven't, we haven't heard from you in a while. I know. But I know. I'm so glad you're back with Double, with Double Down yep. South. Tom, this movie, this is a pot boiler. It is razor sharp characters. The dialogue is perfect. Steeped and the whole film it's steeped in the scent in the idea of the a poorer old South. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I know where you shot it in Madison, Georgia. Madison yep. it's anything but a very poor area. Uh, That's right. Outside Atlanta, most of the homes there go close to the half million dollar range. Yeah, you know it. Uh, I know. I know the area, um, and so, and even I think the cost of living there—it's three percent higher. It's a, it, than most of the country. Five percent wow. higher than the rest of Georgia, I think it is. Boy, you know a lot about it. Are you from there? No, my aunt lives further south in Omaha, Georgia. My mother was from Columbus, Georgia, uh, mm-hmm. and I have a lot of friends in the area, especially in that suburban Atlanta mm-hmm. area, mm-hmm. Um, which has now become such a mecca for filmmaking, thanks in large part to Tyler Perry initially, with his yeah, Tyler Perry right. Studios. So, which. Yep could explain why we're getting, you know, half a million dollar McMansions now um, <laughs> in the area. <laughs> yeah. But you you found this incredible location with a house that it looks like it has been there since the Civil War. Mm-hmm. It has seen much better days. Um, yep. And so you really steep us in the idea of hustling and pool and the poor south um and everybody is a redneck essentially yeah yeah (laughs) there is not a moment i was not steeped in this world tom that's great where and that was that was the goal so well i'm so glad you definitely achieved that goal and who knew there is Billiards Kino. Yeah. <laughs> I I knew. I, I played it when I was a kid, but I, you know, it's, it hasn't been around for quite a while, but uh, you you're you're reinvigorating the community with it. You're going to bring it back. I uh, I hope so. It's a it was a, a pretty diabolical gambling game as you saw in the movie. So it it it, uh, it was banned in many states, you know, and pretty popular for about 100 years and then disappeared. That it's it's more dangerous than you know most poker games. Oh yeah. Uh, once the other, once somebody has control of the rack, you know they can just keep playing and keep beating you and keep doubling and it's it's awful. And and you really made a point, and this working with your cinematographer Alan Cadell, to yeah. we really get to, to see 
the whole idea and the pain of doubling down. It's like I'm, I was clenching my fist as we're on a roll and somebody's controlling the rack and it's like, hey, double down on the next shot, double down on the next shot. And we see the yeah. piles of money and you're using close-ups there on the piles of money. So we mm -hmm. really get the sense of what is at stake here? And it's those little touches that you brought. And this is only your second feature directorial. It's been way too long since you last sat in the director's chair, Tom. Yeah, yeah, for, for me too. But I'm so glad I got a chance to get back in it. So where did the whole idea of Double Down South come from? What was the genesis for this? Sort of two things. One, I had a friend whose brother... Uh, started a, a poker salon in his house <laughs> in, in right after he got out of college. And he, he, all he did was cut the pot, and he provided a safe haven for, for everybody who came there. He, he bought a federal gambling license so he wouldn't end up like Al Capone. He paid off the cops, and when the cops couldn't be paid off in Davidson County, which is where Nashville is, he moved out to an outlying county and paid off the cops there. So he was, it was a, and then he got the idea of bringing in uh, big roller, great big name poker players so that the locals would want to come in and play him for high stakes. So he, it became a very popular place. He put a couple of kids through college, actually, <laughs> doing that. And uh, uh, so that was one thing. And uh, it was a pretty rough place, by the way. Uh, the other was that I grew up uh, kind of a misspent youth playing playing pool, went to a pool hall in Nashville called 20th Century Pool Hall, and in the back they had this game of Keno. And, you know, you'd go and you'd watch, and if you didn't understand the game, you'd put your dollar up there and wait your turn to play and then, you know, get taken. Because, I mean, the first time I played, I, I had my dollar there, and the person who, who had, was controlling the table who won said, okay, you're up. And he broke, and he made a double, and he said, okay, you owe me two bucks. So I said, okay, and I got ready to shoot. He goes, no, no, it's my shot again. So he hit a, made another double. Now it was four bucks I owed him. And I said, wait a minute, I, this, this is confusing me. He said, it's my shot again. I said, if you, if you double again, I'm going to owe you eight bucks. And he said, yep. I said, well, I don't have eight bucks. And he said, well, you got that watch you're wearing. I went, oh, my God. And he, you know, broke and missed. So I get ready to shoot, and somebody said, "You know, if you shoot and miss, it's his shot again, and he doesn't get—he doesn't quit until he misses. So you could start all over." And I didn't even get to shoot. Oh I my just god! Walked away. <laughs> oh so, my god! Yeah. So I learned the hard way, and then when you know no one was playing on the table, us kids would go back there and practice and learn how to play. But uh, you know, and play at your own peril. You know, don't don't play high stakes, and and you know, it's it's a it's a scary game. So, uh, and there was a woman that came in there. You know, I was probably fourteen, fifteen years old, and this this woman probably I don't know twenties, and she would play high stakes keno with those guys in the back, and you know, she was she was tough, and you know, won a lot and so forth. We'd sit around hoping, you know, for a glance from her, never never got one. And uh, <laughs> uh, But that stuck with me, and somewhere in the beginning of the, of the COVID thing, I thought about that thing, and those two ideas came together, and I thought, okay, this plantation house where, you know, this is, they play this game out in the sticks. 
Oh, my God. Well, it took you long enough to get inspired to tell that story. It did. I, you know, I, I literally was thinking to myself, I don't, I don't really know what I want to write right now. And then, bam, that thing just popped right into my head. It was it's really strange. Now, as you were writing this, was it your intent to direct as well? It was. But I, I write everything as if I'm going to direct it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, most of the time it doesn't work out that way. But, but this time... Uh, my friend Rick Wallace raised, you know, said, read the script and said, I'm going to produce this for you. And, you know, the money came through and, you know, a year later we were shooting it. Well, you've got a great cast. Kim yeah, Coates, the minute I saw Kim Coates was in this, I was like, oh, my God. Kim Coates yeah. can, he can thrill you and chill you at the same time. I know. And uh, he he can be so charming and so 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 scary, you know. Both. And so. as Nick, he is both. Mm-hmm. He is both at yep. the same yep. time, yep. Uh, because you never know which way he's going to fly. Um, yep. He is perfectly cast as the ringleader of this billiards kino yep, um, endeavor. And then you bring in Lily Simmons as Diana, our female who comes in and upsets the apple cart, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. She is amazing. And watching her go toe-to-toe with Kim, yep. those two, you, can, you feel the sparks flying, but it's the kind yep. of sparks that, okay, is somebody going to need bail posted to get them out of jail? Yeah. Or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Igby Rigney, I, I love this whole idea of you got Nick, you have little Nick, and Igby Rigney, he's just enchanting. He's so sweet. Yeah, he's so talented, yeah. And then, of course, one of my longtime fave character actors, you got Tom Bauer in there. I know. Is I old that. Nick. I mean, most people will know him best, I think. For playing Marvin the Maintenance Man in Die Hard 2. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it just, it, it's just on every level, Tom. Uh, you know, I have, to, I have to imagine that once you get it down on paper, you get this perfectly cast. But part of that casting is you need people who can really embrace and embody the dialogue that you've written because this yeah. dialogue is extremely specific mm-hmm. and not only in terms of what you've written in the story but to the region it's yeah. very specific to the region you're not going to find people in Los Angeles who may have a billiards kino hustle going Right. You're not going to have the same kind of vibe. You're not going to have the same kind of dialogue um, and the back and forth repartee that we see unfolding here. The South has very specific, very specific when you're sitting out there on your porch rocking, sipping your sweet tea. There's a very specific cadence and a very specific dynamic to the region. Mm Mm-hmm. Was that, did that impact or make it more challenging to find your cast here? 
I mean, for me, it was a given once once I found them that they were going to f- be able to do the accents and 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 own that life. You know, we had five days of rehearsal. They, uh, Lily Simmons spent weeks before um, we she we started learning how to play. You know, pool really getting good at it. She was good before, but uh, Matt Craven, a friend of mine who's also a wonderful actor, great pool player, you know, brushed her up, taught her how to play pool, and been really well. So uh, Kim Coates already a good pool player. But, you know, these guys got with an accent coach. And, I mean, Igby, once he started with that, he did not stop speaking with an accent for months <laughs> before we shot. So I think a month anyway. So, you know, they were really dedicated to it. And, um, you know, I grew up in the South, so I have, I have a pretty good ear for it. And, you know, so it was, it was uh, they, they did it. Yeah, because, uh, you know, and it's not just the accent, but it's the words, the actual verbiage that you have written. Um, and it's just, I felt like I was talking to my aunt on the phone. <laughs> um, well, as I said, I grew up in Nashville, so, you know, I haven't lived there in a long time, but I think that stuff is just ingrained once you grow up in a place like that. You know, how, and had you not ha- found the right house or plantation this would not be what it is how difficult was it to find that specific house in that area with the wood with the woods around it it took eight months we the the exterior of the house is in union south carolina Mm -hmm. interior of the house is in madison we found the exterior pretty i think pretty early on maybe middle of the summer and we shot in the winter but finding, a, and we we couldn't take that house, as bad as that house looked on the outside, it wasn't so bad on the inside, and they did not want us to, to mess it up. So we were stuck with, with uh, having to find a house where we could use the interior. And uh, fortunately, our producers, Seth and Sara, knew that house in Madison, and the owner was about to remodel the whole place, so he said, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> so... We took him up, took him up on his word there. So, uh, it's, uh, I mean, everything. And we couldn't make the movie unless we found that place. Yeah, that, that was really a character in the movie. That in the interior of that house is everything with the peeling wallpaper, with the yep. dirt, the years of grease and dirt, and probably some tobacco spit on the walls as well. Yeah, uh, just it. I mean, you could tell. Just based on the height of ceilings and some of the architecture in there, mm-hmm. uh, that you could tell at one point that really was a nice house. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's on a nice street, and it will be a nice house again when when Jim, the owner, gets through remodeling it. It's it's uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's not, not often that a filmmaker gets that lucky. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we we. Pushed, you know, we spent, as I said, probably eight months finding it. So it was, uh, and you know, at a certain point, I just thought, well, maybe, maybe this doesn't exist, especially at our budget, right? There, mm-hmm. there are plantation houses out there, but any, <laughs> most of them are used for weddings and those tours, those sort of things. So they're not going to let you come in and and destroy it the way, or you know, or bring it down to the way this one looked. Yeah, I mean, this is. This the interior of this house looks like one of those places that if you're taking a tour of, uh, you know, southern plantations demolished um, during Sherman's march to the sea, <laughs> yeah. 
That's, <laughs> That's right. what this looks like inside. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it just, it is, and it is, it truly is a character. Now, once you have all of these, these tools, these basic elements in place, you and your cinematographer, Alan Cadillo, what an amazing job you have done. The oh, lighting, the lighting, yeah. the framing. Uh, yeah. You know, I mentioned, you know, your use of close-ups with the money. So we really understood the monetary aspect of doubling down. Mm-hmm. But with people, with framing, so that it, everything about this focuses on the characters, be it right. the house or be it people. Yeah. What were your conversations with Alan like to come up with your visual grammar for this story? Alan, Alan is, you know, he's just, he's a master, at, even though he's pretty young, you know, and uh, he just, he taught, we talked about, you know, the jamming the frame with Pete, what it was going to be like in those rooms with all those observers having to have a, a, a you know, a, 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 a aspect ratio that would hold a pool table properly, you know, so we were, we were looking at widescreen, anamorphic. Uh, and then you know, being able, how how anamorphic you know you have you always have to fill the frame. It's a big frame, mm-hmm. but in this case, it, it would it would happen just because we're in in rooms with all these people for the most part. But it also does interesting things with close-ups and and you know two shots, et cetera. So it you know it it was. He said, let's do it anamorphic and, and, and also shoot it. At, you know, the, the film takes place in the late 90s, so we shot it as if we were making it in the late 90s. So we used the style of, of movie making they used back then, which helps make it feel like it's, it's in that time mm-hmm. as opposed to a modern movie. But Alan is brilliant, and he's quick, you know. We, we had a very quick schedule, and he, he just, you know, amazing kind of speed at setting things up so we weren't waiting a lot for or actually we weren't waiting at all mm-hmm. on, on setup now, lighting. and how was your lighting for this because obviously since you could do anything you wanted to to the house if you needed to bring in lights anchor them to walls i'm guessing you could do that or yep. were you, or was alan pretty much sticking with a lot of natural light coming in through you got a couple of really nice windows set up there mm-hmm. Uh, uh, always, you know, those are our lights on the outside. Right. You can't really rely on the sun. So he rigged the outside of the house. Inside of the house was rigged basically with practical lights. And those lights, you know, you just turn them on. I mean, not just because he's adding stuff. He's got reflections. It's it's all there. But each room is set up so that almost, uh, you know, you light and then you can just move around at will and not have to do too much, you know, tinkering around when you're when you're changing uh, angles and so forth. So uh, makes it really quick. And Alan said, you know, most of the time in in movies nowadays, he's trying to get rid of lights. You know, in the old days, you had to pump in a ton of light. <laughs> yes. Now it's it's all the the frame the the medium is so sensitive that you're trying to eliminate lighting. So you know, in this situation, it made for really interesting you know ways to. to to just pop lights on on where what we wanted to see and let the rest sort of fall back and uh, so he's you know uh, the the 
there's a lot of deep space in there, you know, mm-hmm. where you're in one room and you can see back into the other rooms, and you know, so he had lit that, lit lit the other rooms in a certain way, and and just, you know, I, I love the look he got. The look is fabulous, and of course, as you mentioned, you know, that through look from one room into the other. I got to say, the entry hallway and the staircase that goes upstairs. Fantastic. And I love yeah. the framing, especially with the staircase, because you go up, you've got a small little landing, and it curves up again. Yeah. And we never really get, you've got some great shots where we see the little landing, but we don't see what's going up above there until right. the camera comes up. So it creates a kind of ambiguity and tension mm-hmm. as to, all right, now what's happening? Right. Uh, right. And it's not until the camera goes and we get a new POV at, quote, unquote, the second level. Yep. Yep. Rather than pull way back, point it up, dutch it up, and just show footsteps and mm-hmm. everything going up. So you really keep us in suspense. You build a suspense. And that's something you do really well with oh, this you. film. This really is a pot boiler. The tension builds. And... So much of this, I'm sure, comes from your work with your editor, Yang Hua Hu. Oh, yeah, he's great. And just, I mean, <laughs> he he would edit, uh, you know, we'd shoot on a Monday, and I would have the edited scene the next morning. Wow. Pretty damn well done, you know. It was like, okay, and anyway, the whole point of that exercise was just to make sure that we had gotten everything the day before and didn't, weren't missing shots. And so he would, he would put it together he'd edit the sound that way which is amazing so i i just watched you know the movie come together that way as we shot so you know it it uh, a couple of times we'd miss a shot or two so we'd have to go back but that was that was why he was there and when i got back to la uh, i think i got back on a monday on thursday he had the whole movie edited together oh my about, god only about 15 minutes longer than than what it is now oh my god I know. He's brilliant. Tom, I mean, when you take time off and you come back, you make a very auspicious coming, you know, return to cinema. I got very fortunate. You know, <laughs> my producers were, you know, new great people, and we just, we, you know, got lucky they were available and so, so good. Now, you, you mentioned something really important, um, a very sensory part of this film, sound. Mm-hmm. How much of the, because there is so much sound, you've got a cacophony of voices in the background. You have yeah. moments of partying and behaving like fools because they're happy that Diana is moving on and has snookered somebody. Um, yeah. But then it's the quiet. We get a lot of quiet when shots are being set up and then when shots are being made. We right. just we hear the cue hitting the ball, and yeah. then the ball rolling. We actually hear it roll up on the kino board that is yeah. on the pool table. How difficult was it, from a sound perspective, to capture yeah. and to create all of that nuance? I mean, from my perspective, one of the things that that tips you know low budget movies is poor sound. So we we really focused in on getting good sound and also you know wanted again since the house was a and you know this whole place was part of it was a character wanted to make sure it had a voice you know pool was part of its voice the creaking of the house 
which you hear upstairs a lot, and the dripping of water because there are leaks in the house when yeah. we're there, the rain outside, you know, just, just the the sound of, of people in the other rooms, all that stuff, you know, we really got, got you know, very careful to try to build that world and with you, sound as well as picture. You did an amazing job, you know, even to the sound of footsteps going up and down the wooden stairs. Yeah. yeah. And... You know, were it not for the music and the partying, it would have been interesting to hear very courteously um, you had your actors in character when they're dancing on the pool table. You know, anybody that has ever been in a bar or anywhere with pool tables, you stay off the pool table you do the felt you don't put glassware on it you don't walk on it you don't scratch it with your nails anything else they very carefully and very kindly were dancing on the pool table in their socks mm-hmm. that's right i thought that was really a cute cute touch i gotta tell yeah. you tom yeah <laughs> well little nick knew he was going to remodel the table you know <laughs> Now, your score, I find this really interesting. What you have for score, it's moody. Mm -hmm. It doesn't overpower. It also does not tell us what we're supposed to be feeling. Talk to me Uh, about what you wanted musically, working with your composer, with Adam Berry. Yeah, it's, I mean, to me, it's all about character. You know, each each character has a little theme in there that you know it's not obvious to necessarily to the audience, and I don't ever think it should be. But it's subconsciously there are these themes that that are you know the, each character has one, and there's sometimes it's it's light when when the characters relax, and sometimes it's tense when the characters not. But you know, mainly the music is there you know to to heighten the suspense when necessary. You know, it's used very sparingly, which we discussed you know, before Adam did it. And uh, and then it's there to, to sort of, you know, give you a sense of the, the, the where this place is. You know, it's rural music, mm-hmm. Americana music. You know, it kind of borders on bluegrass, but there's a lot of blues in there too, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of the, the needle drop music, a lot of the, the source music is, is from, you know, the blues era, which, and you know, the 50s and 60s and so forth, and maybe and even before that, too, also, with the kind of stuff that would have been on an old jukebox that they just bought and put in there. Oh, Tom's phone broke. We were warned. We were warned. Okay, so, let's see. I don't know if Tom's going to call back. We were warned. He's having an issue with his phone. This is not our phones this time. Um, Pam, I have a number that we can call back. Um, unless he calls us. I'm going to briefly get off the mic here to give Pam this number. Oh, wait. He's dialing us back. Okay. We were warned in advance, Tom. No worries. <laughs> Don't worry, we've still been dealing with issues here in the studio since November 13th when there was okay. no well. there was no phone service for almost a month. Wow. In a state yeah, in a radio station, I know. Unbelievable. So, I sympathize. So, you know, we were warned Thank that your you. phone might do that. 
Yeah, but at thirty minutes exactly, and I'm sitting there talking, and suddenly going, oh, "It's dead." You know? Well, I was wa- I'm watching the clock here in the studio, and I'm like, I'm waiting for the phone to die. Yeah, I, I, I thought I, w- I was watching it, and then it just got me when I wasn't paying attention. So. <laughs> but that's okay. We work with it. You know, yeah. I think okay. I've gone through just about everything possible w- with live going being live broadcasting. So. Phones are just another another day in in paradise, I guess. Right. Okay. But as we were as you were saying about the scoring and the blues and yeah, the, yeah. I was saying that I, you know the, the the sort of beginning of the discussion was what kind of music would would Nick have in that jute box, mm-hmm. you know, and did, would he even care? You know, he probably just bought a jute box or it was there when he got got the place or his father figured out what kind of music they wanted. But most of the time, jute boxes were, were uh, sort of programmed by, you know, uh, the, the people that sold you the jute box. Mm-hmm. They put 50, 50, 50 records in there, and it would be from a certain era. And, you know, the 30s, 40s, and 50s just felt like that would be the era, and it would be the blues and country music from that, that era. So Adam sort of... Uh, you know, started there, and I think the original stuff he wrote really felt like it was the right. It just came out of that 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 milieu. Mm-hmm. Well, because obviously, as we, it doesn't take long for us to realize with Nick that he's not going to spend money to put anything new in the jukebox. It's whatever That's is right. there is there. Right. And the jute box is basically broken. You have to lift it up, put a record on the little turntable in there, and play it. There's no, <laughs> yeah, and been repaired in 25 years, probably. If that, if yeah. that. That's so right. now, what you know, was there any kind of learning curve for you when you got back in the directorial saddle again, or was this just muscle memory just kicking right back in for you? A little bit of both. I made a short about a year before this, you know, just to sort of get back and, and you know, play around, so one day shoot and, and, you know, get used to it again. And, uh, but, you know, I, I did all the, you know, sort of preparation and so forth, so I, I just felt ready. It, it was wisely or unwisely that I, I felt ready. <laughs> so now after you have now, you're back, the film, it's coming out. Yep. Um, and I'm so excited for people to get to see it. What was the most challenging aspect of bringing Double Down South to life once you finally decided to tell this really great story, mind you, um, mm-hmm. after so many years? But what would, what would you say was the most challenging aspect for you, um, be it as a from a directorial standpoint or writing standpoint, uh, to bring this to life? I would say it was the, the schedule. You know, it's always the schedule, I think. But in this case, we didn't, you know, have a lot of time to shoot this. So it was all about being totally prepared. So, you know, and, and I mean, it's it's boring, but sleep, <laughs> you know, getting enough sleep is... is is always a challenge and you know the the first movie i made i never got more than four hours and it exhausted me in this case same thing but i i, I was only tired one day um and you know we we had two-day weekends and 
you know, I'd, I'd go back from from on a Friday night and go and Saturday morning, get up at six in the morning and spend, you know, 18 hours planning Saturday, 18 hours planning Sunday and, you know, start shooting again on Monday. And uh, but and this in spite of the fact that I had prepared for months before we we, we were shooting. So it was it's in constant, you know, tweaking and rewriting and, you know, revising dialogue and playing around with characters and story, you know, just, just, it's, someone said it's like playing chess with the universe, and it's kind of true, you know, but in this case, the universe did not, you know, the rain didn't kill us, we didn't have, you know, electrical storms that shut us down, we only had one case of COVID, and that person never showed up on the set, so we, you know, wow, I think we administered 3,000 tests, and only one positive, you know, just, we, we were really lucky. But uh, but the schedule is the, the, the challenge for me. And just getting all the, 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 the blocking and everything done right, you know, in, in time and with those pool tables and so forth. Yeah, because with that blocking, that had to take time, uh, which speaks to Alan as a cinematographer, because yeah. those are not big rooms. No. Mm-mm. It was... Those are know, small, we, like, par. What, what would be like a parlor room. That's right. Um, so to block it, and the pool tables are not small, as we all know. Right. They take up room, a lot of room. Yep, yep. And you know, we just had an amazing crew, and, and the cast, you know, we rehearsed, as I said, we rehearsed for five days, so the cast, you know, knew it cold. You know, it, it seemed like every time I, I knew exactly what the blocking would be, and then I'd realize, oh, no, they have to rack now, or they have to move down to the other end of the table. Of course, you know, you just forget that these little things had to happen, and it's like, oh, God. So, you know, you just try because you want to you wanna know exactly what's going what's gonna to happen when you shoot it. But, uh, you know, the people were just, and the ability of this cast to, to just live in those characters and 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 you know get it done was amazing well the proof is in the pudding tom uh thank you you prepared for this you wrote a great script it's very well cast your production values are excellent and i just i this is my the first big film of this year that i am in love with Um, well that's so kind thank you so much i've watched I just I binged on Saturday. I did seven upcoming films. On Friday, I did four. Um, out of all of them, Double Down South is my front runner. Uh, is a favorite oh, film. Great. It's just, it is superb, and it's all those details. The devil is in the details, and you certainly yeah. took care of that. So, yeah. you know, now what are you going to do with yourself? <laughs> Uh, I've got a couple other scripts, you know, on the on the stove right now. So, hoping, you know, when if this once this is out, hoping to get one of those made, you know. Well, so, uh, got to finish, got to finish them first, but pretty close. So. I mean, I don't want to see you disappear from the canvas for too long. No, I don't. I don't want to either. Um, uh, uh, Trey Crowder, Callie Curry, T Bone Burnett, and I are are about to do a podcast. We got to write it first, so I'll be doing that next, um, and then uh, then try to get the, these movies made. Oh my God! 
Well, I have one last question for you, Tom, before I let you go, that I love to ask all Academy Award winners. Where did you put your Oscar for Dead Poets Society? Uh, it's up on a shelf, uh, you know, on a bookshelf in my office. <laughs> Not the bathroom, huh? No, I have a friend who who used it as a bathroom door. He had two. He used one of them as a bathroom doorstop, and the other one was was in his office. But no, I don't. I don't, I don't keep it there. Although I'd see it more often, I guess, if I did. <laughs> <laughs> I asked Michael Caine once about his Oscar, and he goes, "I have shelves above my desk." And I have it on the shelf, so when people walk in my office and they see me sitting in my chair, they immediately see my Oscar above my head. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> so, Tom, this has been an absolute joy having you on the show. To kick oh, off, thank you. Uh, this kicks off year 10 for Behind the Lens, actually. Um, yeah. So having you on is just absolutely glorious, and I hope we oh. get to do this again in the future. Me too. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun. I really, really appreciate your your having me. Oh, thank you, Tom. And you have a great rest of your day. And uh, I'll be on the lookout for that podcast, too. Uh, Yes, it won't. It'd probably be midsummer, I guess, at this point. All right. Tom, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye. And that was writer-director Tom Schulman talking about his new film, Double Down South. Um, see it. See it. It's, it's wonderful. Um, you'll be able to find it everywhere. What is it, the 19th? I think it's the 19th. It's either the 12th or the 19th. My brain is already addled in 2024. What can I say? So that is all the time we have. And yes, we started the year off right and ran over. Okay, next week, next week we have Andrew Baird joining us to talk about his new film. Uh, And then later this month, a filmmaker that I love, haven't spoken to him in a long, long, long time, Joe Maggio will be joining us again. And already... Looking ahead into February, that rascally rabbit, Frank Meyer, who is currently in Spain touring with, to, with Trading Aces, one of his bands, he'll be back with us in February, uh, live in studio, regaling us with tales of tours. But that is all the time we have. Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is... Behind the Lens.